Hi, and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm EPIC's Executive Director, Sam Horry. Economists are largely united in their belief that carbon pricing is the key to transitioning to a low-carbon future by changing behaviors and incentivizing innovation. But as a policy, carbon pricing has received considerable bipartisan pushback, with some conservatives opposed to any tax, including those on fossil fuels, and some progressives saying it could exacerbate socioeconomic inequalities. Epic hosted a deep dive conversation on carbon pricing and how a policy could be structured to help consumers, the climate, and energy security. The event included BP's head of state government affairs and third party advocacy, Phil Cochran, as well as Epic's current policy fellows, Heather McTeer Tony, vice president of community engagement for the Environmental Defense Fund, and former Congressman Carlos Corbello, who proposed a carbon tax gas tax swap when he was in Congress. The event was moderated by Epic's journalism fellow, Lisa Friedman, a climate policy reporter for the New York Times. Let's listen into their conversation. Thank you to all of you for being here. I'm really excited to have this discussion with three smart people, uh, two of whom I've known for a long time, one of whom we've we've just met tonight um, on an issue that we all think and talk about a lot. which is how to address climate change mm. and what the role of a carbon tax is and could be. Um, you were having this conversation at a something of an inflection point for US policy. The Biden administration came in a year and change ago with a very ambitious uh, set of, of pledges. President Biden promised to reduce US emissions 50 to 52% below 2005 levels by 2030. Um, That's an effort to keep the US on track to keeping global temperatures at 1.5 degrees um, compared to pre-industrial levels. At the moment, the main legislative vehicle for reaching that goal is stalled in the Senate with uh, zero Republican supporters and one very important opponent on the Democratic side, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Meanwhile, emissions are going in the wrong direction. (laughs) Um, And and, we are are getting increasingly dire reports from the IPCC about the impacts of rising global temperatures on sea level rise, on wildfires, on crop failures, on hunger and migration. Enter into all of this Russia's war on Ukraine um, and rising gas prices. We're now seeing the Biden administration both calling on oil and gas companies to drill more to keep gas prices down, but also promising to keep an eye on and address the transition to clean energy. And so, what better moment to talk about a <laughs> what, what many economists believe is the most efficient way to address climate change, but which has certainly its opponents on both the left and the right. Um, Carlos, I'd love to start with you. You have been a very early voice on a carbon tax. If you could set the stage for us about why you think a carbon tax is the right way to go and what it would do. 
Well, thank you, Lisa. And, and first, let me just thank uh, University of Chicago. I know that Heather and I are honored to be affiliated with EPIC, uh, where amazing, sober work gets done. And I'll be using the word sober a lot tonight, because I think that's what we need to solve this issue. And I, and I also want to nod to Lisa, because she covers this issue with great sobriety and deep insights, obviously. The New York Times, I think, is doing a spectacular job of of um, covering climate, and you know, I said something nice about everyone else, so I'll say something <laughs> nice about Phil and BP. BP is a great example of a, of a corporate citizen that understands they have an important role in all of this and, and is at the table and is offering solutions and, uh, and just being very transparent and honest about what we need to solve this. So it's wonderful to be with all of you, especially uh, the great students here at the University of Chicago. So uh, carbon pricing, it's a tax. And uh, that's why not just Republicans, but a lot of uh, members of Congress are afraid of it, because the idea of raising taxes or imposing new taxes is scary for politicians. Uh, the reason I uh, ended up taking the step of introducing carbon pricing legislation in 2018, just months before an election, which, by the way, I did lose that election, but it had nothing to do with carbon pricing. It had to do with the fact that there was a blue wave that hit suburban America, and I represented the most Democratic-leaning district in the country held by a Republican. Some of the opponents of carbon pricing try to say, oh, Carlos lost because he filed this bill. That's not true. Most people in my district didn't even know I filed that bill. Um, so, so just to set the record straight on that. But, but to me, it's a very honest and transparent way of recognizing uh, that there is a cost uh, to pollution. And um, carbon emissions, because we use all these fancy words that most people can't relate to, is, is just pollution. It's air pollution that makes people sick, ruins quality of life, uh, causes sea level rises to go up in, uh, in towns like mine, Miami, which are exposed. Uh, I also used to represent the Florida Keys, talk about an area that, that is uh, at the tip of the spear when it comes to sea level rise. So all a carbon tax does is recognize that there's a cost to pollution and that that cost should be internalized, another fancy word that most people don't understand what it means. It's just that that cost should be taken into account in the economy. When we pay for things, when we buy things, uh, there should be a recognition that that um, pollution uh, is, has a cost, right? And, and we're already seeing what the cost is. In South Florida, we've had cities and, and counties that have had to elevate roads, install sophisticated pump systems to deal with tidal flooding. So it's real. It, it's not a theory. We're already experiencing it. So all a carbon tax does is say, okay, this is what we estimate the cost of this is. Let's take it into account. Let's raise this revenue because we need it to offset you know, the problems it's causing. It's just like if someone drives around your block every day and throws a bunch of trash out, out their truck, you know, you're going to probably have to pay someone to go and pick it up and dispose of it, or you're going to do it yourself, and that, that has a cost. So all carbon pricing does is uh, it transparently and honestly recognizes a cost, and it trusts American consumers, Americans, to solve it. It does not, you know, the government isn't the one saying, this is what we're going to do. This is the regulation. This is what we're going to tell BP they can only do this or that at certain times. No. It's the American consumer, all of us, as we make decisions out in the marketplace, that are going to 
um, arrive at the outcome that is most desirable. So that's kind of my, my brief summary on carbon pricing, why I think it's a great policy and why it's so challenged politically. Thank you for setting the table. Heather, you, you work for EDF, you, 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 your organization is supportive of a carbon tax, but you also are you know, deeply connected to and understand the concerns that communities of color, that low-income communities, and that many progressives have had about a carbon tax. Can you explain what they are and, and you know, maybe how they can also be addressed? Sure, and I think it's, it's one of the reasons why this is such a great setting to have this conversation. And you know, ditto to what Carlos said, it's, it's beautiful that Epic is hosting these two different views to really get at the meat of what is the solution that is equitable, is just, and is scalable to solve this. So let's look a bit about who is paying the price of carbon mm -hmm. and how we are determining what that price is. Because for many environmental justice communities, communities of color and communities that have been on the front lines of not only the climate crisis, but pollution in this country, have, have and do sit in places that have suffered from historic and systemic racism in this country, some of which has even been pushed by the federal government. And so when we think about what is the price that's being paid, how do we calculate that? Environmental justice communities say that the idea of human life as a commodity is one that this country has already paid a significant price for, and that we are ill-advised if we do not recognize and understand what these communities are paying in terms of their presence. Because every infrastructure, every place where you have pollution coming out of that we're calculating what this cost is sits somewhere. And so as we're thinking about what is this real price and how are we paying for it, who is paying the price, it is the idea of not wanting to be a sacrifice zone. It is the people in Beaumont, Texas, or in Port Arthur, Texas, or St. James Paris, Louisiana, places where you have facilities that line places and they are dealing with the cumulative impacts of pollution. And so one of the things that we have to take into consideration while we do think that market-based solutions and carbon pricing, carbon taxing is part of the solution, it's not the only part. And we have to be cognizant of other policies that are aligned with it to ensure that we have equitable outcomes and that we are creating pathways and solutions that don't, again, commoditize life in a way that we know has been detrimental to us in the United States in the past. Is there a good example of either how a carbon tax proposal has been designed poorly or well in a way that enhances equity rather than causes more harm? I, I certainly think there, there are, no one's gotten it right yet. Okay. <laughs> so I, there's a lot of running room here and a lot of room for growth. And I think one of the things we can sort of discuss and debate here is um, understanding that we don't have a lot of time to do this. There's an urgency to this action. The uh, Secretary General for the UN just said this past Earth Day that the biggest emitters of pollution have to make a significant cut this year, 2022. So before Christmas, in a couple of weeks, 
because we can measure them, and we're measuring weeks now. We have to have some significant uh, cut and change. Well, that is a huge driver to what we decide to do. And it is, as we were sort of talking before, we, have, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Everybody is not going to be happy in this. There is a report that was done by the NAACP back in 2017 that outlined where are the problems. But also, if there had to be some type of carbon tax or carbon solution, some of the places we need to look to ensure that there were um, levers to be more inclusive. And, and one of those was having a strong community co-creation process. Having communities on the front end be there at the table to help design. I think they tried that in Washington State um, with the passage, well, not quite sure how well it went. <laughs> But the idea of having the community as a part of the front end of the policy making and helping to understand what the deployment of this would mean is one of the things that, again, the NAACP identified in their report back in, in I believe it was 2009. I'll look that up and make sure I'm correct. Community co-creation process, understanding who and where is benefiting from that trade and seeing it localized. These are, I think, pieces of it that we haven't considered as fully as we need to. And, and we'll come back to specific examples like Washington State. But Phil, and the, the movement of the business community of oil majors, some trade groups on carbon pricing has been notable. Um, BP is one of. You know, major oil company, oil and gas companies that that are now in favor of a price on carbon. The American Petroleum Institute came out with a broad proposal last week on on putting a price on carbon. A lot of this has been met with with skepticism um, from the climate community and and others. From BP's end, why do you support a price on carbon? So first, let me just say thank you to the University of Chicago for having us, because what we're doing right now is what we need to do more of in this country. We need to talk through these issues. They're difficult, and we learn, and we need to keep multiplying these learnings. And as you think about it as a company, we have continued to learn. It goes back to when Lord John Brown was our CEO, and he gave a speech in Stanford. It was actually in the last century. Uh, in the 1990s, right. where he recognized uh, that the risk of climate change required action. And um, we as a company have gone down the path since that time in trying to address it. And we've had some successes, we've had some failures, but we've learned along the way. Uh, back in 2006, we actually uh, supported California's cap and trade program that uh, Governor Schwarzenegger, a Republican, brought into the state. And I actually was in the port of Long Beach when Lord Brown and Arnold Schwarzenegger met and talked about this. And it was a fascinating conversation. And you know, fast forward through that, um, just this past, uh, I guess it was in 2018, um, BP took a position in Washington state against a, uh, a uh, uh, an initiative on uh, a price on carbon. 
our view on it was not just took a position again, but spent eighteen million. No, it, it was more like thirteen, Thir but it was 13, very sorry, it was sorry. a very significant amount of money, and um, we worked very hard in the lead up to that initiative being uh, put together. We tried to provide input. We tried to provide suggestions for how that uh, that should be shaped, mm -hmm. and what we found was it excluded very large portions of the economy. And that our concern was if this was enacted, it would actually make it harder to get good carbon policy in place. So we very publicly said we're going to oppose this, but we committed to moving forward, if it failed, to helping shape carbon pricing legislation in the state of Washington. And that evolved into what? And that evolved into this past year. Uh, the passage of the Climate Commitment Act. Governor Inslee and the legislature, Senator Carlisle in particular, took an incredible leadership role to move that along, and we worked very closely with them. Um, for us, we learned some things, and would we do things differently in 2018? Yes, we would. But that said, um, I think Heather just said it, we can't let the, the, the uh, perfect be the enemy of the good. We have to iterate. We have to act now. We need to have the policy in place because time continues to move. And the longer it takes for us to take action, the harder it's going to be to take the steps necessary to get to net zero. And so from BP's perspective, carbon pricing provides the most fair, efficient, and actually the easiest way for the economy to come to the solutions that we need. Right. It's about people in the economy. It's about our consumers making choices because there's a price attached to it. They'll make decisions about the type of transportation they want because there's a price attached to it that accounts for carbon. The same for home heating. The same for um, the electricity they consume. We think it does the things that help set the stage that allows our country to transition, and frankly, the world to transition. And this is, you know, maybe we'll start, Carlos, with you. I mean, the Build Back Better legislation that uh, was the cornerstone of President Biden's legislative agenda that included, in the end, uh, $550 billion in in climate funding, most of which was, I think, 330 was tax incentives for everything from electric vehicles uh, to grid improvement. Um, carbon tax was not in serious consideration from the White House and nor from members of Congress. I'd love, uh, from either of you, you know, any of you who were involved in the discussions with, with members of Congress or with your colleagues in the environmental or business community, why not? Well, what Democrats embraced initially uh, as part of Build Back Better was a clean energy standard. Why? Because it's not obviously a tax. Of course, it is a tax, but it's a hidden tax. So it's easier to sell to the American people. And that goes to show you that opposition for this policy doesn't only come from the right, it comes from the left too. 
uh, Democrats didn't want to seem or look like they were going to raise taxes broadly in the country, which, you know, to be honest, uh, even though you can design it in a way to protect uh, um, lower income Americans, a, a carbon tax would uh, raise taxes in a broad way across the economy. So uh, this is a communications issue, and, and we were talking about this today with two uh, of your brilliant professors here, where no one wants to be responsible for uh, a broad-based tax that's going to affect uh, most Americans or all Americans. Uh, Senator Rick Scott of Florida is under fire now from Republicans and Democrats because he proposed the idea that every American should pay some federal income tax, even if it's a few dollars. And basically, he's been ostracized by uh, Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans for suggesting this, and of course, Democrats are pouncing on it. Well, this is no different. And this is the challenge with politics today that uh, I think in the past, as, as we were formulating policy, the considerations were 50% substance, like what's the policy, what do we want to achieve, and then 50% communications. How are we going to sell this? How are we going to tell the story of this policy? These days, uh, th that second part, communications, is like 90%. And uh, everyone lives in fear of losing an election, or losing a primary, losing a general election, and that makes it very hard uh, to move policy. The other problem with Build Back Better and is that I really think Democrats should have taken a narrower approach, which they, they, they might do now, and Joe Manchin is brought together a bipartisan group, which I think is smart. Uh, Democrats, I think, should have focused on passing a climate change bill. Instead, they went with essentially a light version of the Green New Deal, which is not a climate proposal. It's a very broad economic proposal on you know, how to overhaul the US economy, whether you agree with it or not. It's, it's a lot more than a climate proposal, and Build Back Better was too. And to pursue the most expansive liberal agenda in a generation in a Congress where you have a Senate that's split 50-50 and a handful of, of uh, extra votes in the House with a president who is known to be a deal maker, a pragmatist, uh, you know, sure, liberal in his, in his positions, but very much a centrist in his demeanor and style. It was just crazy. I mean, they, they set themselves up for failure. So they're going to give it another go now here uh, at the 11th hour, considering how, how close we are from campaign season. And uh, I, I hope they succeed in, in getting some Senate Republicans uh, to support a narrow climate bill that, as Phil said, is going to make things better. It, it, it may not be the ultimate solution, but, you know, we, and Lisa, maybe you want to talk about this later, but there's a lot of conversation now and some stated bipartisan support for a carbon border tax, which would be extremely interesting because it is an entry point for the government accepting the idea, endorsing the idea, adopting the idea of pricing carbon. Of course, this is like uh, anyone or a lot of people who pay taxes, like don't tax me, tax, tax that guy over there. Um, that, that's essentially what we're doing, but I think it would be a phenomenal historic development if we were able to get a, uh, a border carbon tax uh, that would help us ex not just uh, embrace the idea of pricing carbon, but export it uh, to uh, basically to the entire world. A lot of points to come back to on that, <laughs> and we will. And and I would just I would just say parenthetically that 
I am, I am skeptical about how much bipartisan support there was broadly or even at that meeting, Carla. My, my sources tell me you Kevin Kramer better, showed you, up you, at you, the end and <laughs> that was the only other Republican She has there. good sources, so, <laughs> so you're probably right. <laughs> so we'll, we'll come back to what comes next. But Heather, I mean, do you agree with that assessment? Are there other reasons that, that Democrats and, and for, for those uh, you know, who uh, are not familiar with all the machinations of Washington, the Build Back Better legislation that had been on the table was uh, done under reconciliation in a way that would have only required Democrats to pass it if they couldn't get any Republican votes, which they couldn't, but they also couldn't get all Democratic votes. Um, why not? Why not a carbon price then? Well, yeah, I and think it's you know I love the way that my dear friend here phrases it as if we only have fifty members of Congress. Right? <laughs> what, what what has happened here, and we really should look at this, is. The Biden administration came into a White House where they were battling COVID, dealing with the economy, handling racial injustice in this country in a way that it had never been before. And oh, by the way, there are roughly 100 environmental rollbacks that we need to figure out just so we can get back to square one on what we need to do in order to meet our Paris climate agreement. So carbon tax and pricing is one of the many things that this administration was having to face and deal with and work through. And Build Back Better, right now, in this moment, is the absolute best way for us to meet a lot of those goals, right now. And, and focusing, I think, on one particular senator versus the other 50 plus one that are and have excommunicated themselves, quite frankly, from this conversation is crazy. Because I'm not aware of any particular district or state in this country that is not suffering from extreme weather, suffering from the issues affiliated with air pollution, transportation pollution, and we're all trying to figure out how to make our country and really our world more resilient to the climate crisis that we know is at hand. So we have this moment in time right now to get this passed. And it's gonna take us working together in order to figure out how to do it. Now, that's the big broad brush. Can it be done? Are we going to do it? Yeah, I actually be one of those people who's a little hopeful and say, uh, it, it is possible for us to do. But even with that, lessons learned from the past two administrations now tell us that we still need significant buy-in, and this is where I absolutely agree with you, on the communications piece to ensure that the people in this country are able to move very quickly in deploying and continuing these actions. So getting the communications right and telling people not only what we're doing, but how it is impactful to them I noticed something really interesting around Build Back Better. Inside the Washington DC bubble, it means one thing. But there are really two parts to what the Biden administration has been working on in terms of climate policy. You have the bipartisan infrastructure bill that, that was passed last year, 
And that's the money that people see in communities right now today. And then we have what we're trying to pass now in reconciliation. So there are really two parts. Now, the money that was passed last year is now hitting communities, cities, counties, academic institutions. Like Checks are getting in the mailbox now. And people are seeing shovel in dirt. So when I go to a community and I'm talking to folks in their church and their civic, civic groups, now they're beginning to see these dollars at play in their community. Their friends, their neighbors, their kids are getting jobs. They're being part of this creative process. And for them, we are building back better. We are doing and creating a more resilient space. The communication, there seems to be this lag because on one hand, inside of the Beltway, it is, oh, I don't know if we're going to get it and we're going to do it, we're going to pass it. But when I go to the church in St. John Parish, or if I'm in and around the Houston area, or if I'm in West Oakland, or if I'm on the south side of Chicago, and people are talking about what they're doing and where they're working right now, it's a different message. So I agree, we have got to figure out this communications piece such that um, people are understanding, and, and I hope we get to this too, because um, I would love to hear, hear Phil, from you uh, about this, about how we are using the levers that we have to change the policy and allowing, doing a better job of getting people engaged. Because one of the biggest problems that we have right now is access to voting. People who cannot have access to voting. People who want to see climate policy change are the same people who are not allowed the right to vote in this country. There's a Yale study done, no offense to the University of Chicago, but there's a Yale study that says people of color, black and brown people, people who live in um, uh, communities of color are more likely than anybody else in this country to vote for a climate policy. But those are the very same people who don't have access to vote. So the folks that are lobby being lobbied are the policymakers that were saying, you know, hey, you should go out here and you're gonna support this shift and change, but that's not reflective of the people who live in the communities. So how do we fix that? Who are we lobbying to? And why are we creating legislation or lobbying for legislation on a state or federal level that doesn't allow people the access to vote for the climate policies that we say they're supposed to have? And I admit to being professionally negative and cynical. It's <laughs> Journalists are are sometimes, and you know, it is having watched climate policy in Congress wither on the vine since two thousand nine. It is, you know, it is a moment when we are both seeing real money being spent in communities on resilience, on uh, you know, hydrogen hubs, on grid efficiency, um, but. What all of the studies I've seen are is that the money that is currently in Build Back Better is what is going to draw down emissions in the United States, if not another another effort. I, you know. So, so Phil, Lisa, me... if you think about it, though, the climate provisions in Build Back Better are nothing new. Every couple of years, them? does BP support the climate absolutely. provisions in Build Back Absolutely, we Have do, and we've got, we've people? been on absolutely. We've also communicated with uh, members of Congress in the buildup, saying that we would like to see a price of carbon yeah. as as part of the package. But every couple of years, Congress at the end of the year would pass something called the Tax Extenders Package, which would extend credits for 
onshore wind projects, offshore wind, solar. And by and large, the big piece of this in this package are those very items that bipartisan support came every year when this bill came forward. There are some additional things that are really necessary. Things around carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, um, electric vehicle, uh, transmission. All of which, or most of which, also have bipartisan support. E exactly. So, so while you have that, that natural cynicism, because that causes you to ask the questions you need to, I look at it with a sense of optimism and go, why is it so hard? Because they've done it before. And you know, our message to them is, let's keep going down this path. Let's make those investments. Because you see something like this nascent offshore wind business off the East Coast, as an example. BP has invested, uh, along with our partner Equinor, in two wind projects uh, offshore uh, New York State. And they just had an auction in the New York Bight uh, for offshore wind access. And the federal government took in a tremendous amount of money in the bid process. So there, there is business support there. There is community support there. And there's this historic support by legislators. So I'd like to think, built on that foundation, we might be able to move this forward in this Congress so we can continue making those investments. Yes, it would be good if carbon pricing was there. But again, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Let's keep moving that, and hopefully we can continue to push for this price on carbon so that we can have hand and glove. But let's not cut off the hand. Let me, Paul, you mentioned that, you, that BP had been on the Hill talking to lawmakers about a price on carbon. I don't hear that a lot. When I talk to Republican members of Congress in Washington, I am often told, you know, I don't have API up here. I don't have, uh, you know, companies up here pressuring me to vote for a price on carbon. That is just not happening. Why is, if you are for a price on carbon, and forgive me for asking you to speak for other, you know, for, for your colleagues and for other companies as well, but if, if the oil industry is increasingly in favor of a price on carbon, if API is saying let's put a price on carbon, why isn't the industry up on the hill using their lobbying heft, which we know is influential, to make that happen? Look, I can't speak on behalf of the industry. I can speak on behalf of what we're doing. Uh, you made reference to API earlier in your comments. I'd like to think that both our transparency on our position and our work within API is making a difference because we've been very clear to it and our uh, industry brethren how important we believe a price on carbon is. We actually publish a report on our trade associations that talks about where we agree and where we disagree on matters of climate policy. Right. So that transparency is one of the ways. And our hope is that we can, we can build support, but that's not stopping us from individually going and having that conversation. And I hear the other thing. Um, I hear from legislators who have a particular view that they really don't want to hear that message mm. from us. So why not? It, it's tough to say. They, yeah. they all well, have their individual. Well, I, I mean, I still speak to a lot of these people, and they uh, 
they're, a lot of them are actually quite angry that uh, companies like BP and especially a trade group like API have taken this position. They there was feel a lot like of angry comments last, last <laughs> yes. week. When exactly. They're being uh, undermined. So yeah, I do think that, that these companies and organizations are being consequential, and, and that's obvious when they're getting attacked by policymakers who have a long history of being friendly to these kinds of, of companies and, and trade groups. And look, yeah, and I especially think among younger people, there's this idea that nothing is being done or that nothing has happened. That's just not true. I mean, Lisa, you, you take us back to 2009, 2010, when cap and trade failed. Obviously, Republicans were nowhere to be found. Senate Democrats couldn't you know, refuse to even hear the legislation. We have come so far. Yep. I mean, we have had significant bipartisan victories on climate just in the last few years. Uh, at the end of, of uh, uh, the Trump presidency, and not that he had anything to do with, with this passing, but uh, Murkowski Mansion, that was a significant piece of bipartisan legislation that included major investments in emissions reductions. The, uh, the um, bipartisan infrastructure bill that got the vote of 19 Senate Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, that had significant climate provisions. So, we are advancing. I, I, I do believe that the shift in positioning from uh, the oil and gas industry and, and from corporate America broadly, because it's, it's obviously not just oil and gas, but the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, you know, the, the, the trade groups that represent the, the biggest, most powerful American companies are all on board. Big banks, I mean, the, the world has changed uh, in a policy sense, in a very positive way. Now, the actual policy itself is lagging, uh, but it's getting better every time. And and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a journalist, <laughs> which which is which is used to, you know, just being skeptical and asking and asking and digging for more. But I, I think there's some pretty hard evidence there that um, we are moving in the right direction. I don't disagree at all. I, I you know, and and even globally, I would point out that you know when. The Paris Agreement was struck in 2015. Uh, the contributions that countries made, uh, it looked like if everybody did what they said they were going to do, we would still be at, I want to say, 3.4 degrees Celsius, you know, uh, blowing past two degrees. Now it looks like as countries have, you know, increased and, and put up more ambitious targets, um, that has shifted already. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not, uh, I, I don't want to misstate the IEA, but I think it was the IEA that said if we, if countries meet their targets, their newer targets will be closer to two degrees, which is still not enough, but it is, it, it, you know, it, targets are getting more ambitious, countries are more focused, the U.S. is more focused, and a lot of the things that you were mentioning about the policies that passed even in the Trump administration towards the end, um, on, on things like reducing HFCs are, are a big deal. Um, I want to start opening things up to questions. I'm not sure what the process is. Do we have a mic going around or? Okay. So, um, so while that mic is going around, just to piggyback on something and, and, and I think bring us back to yes. where we started talking about the, the understanding of this price. We're talking about two things. There's, clearly a political problem because all three of us just just outlined in different ways how our 
individual organizations or groups or places we identify are actually aligned on the fact that we need to do something. And as we were referring to, the, the conflict last week with the business roundtable really pushing back, Senate, Senate Republicans really pushing back in a, in a pretty aggressive way, it was against their own folks and their own friends to say that, you know, if you do this, you support this, this carbon price tax and, you know, don't, don't bite the hand that feeds you, in essence, was what they were saying. So there's a political problem. And then there is the, the problem of how are we calculating, which is the economist problem that I, I, I hope we're able to really work on identifying the different indicators that maybe we see differently here because that is part of that market driver that encourages the action to come from a business and a community perspective. If the business and the community world, the philanthropy world are aligned, it will shift and change the policy. But we have to be on the same page around what needs to be counted. How is it counted? Who is it invested in? How long are we expecting it to take to see a return on that investment? Where are the issues that we don't have trust on? How do we remove those barriers? Because I honestly think we would be able to do that, and I mean community, business, philanthropy, easier right now mm -hmm. than waiting on the government side, no offense to our government, but we're gonna have questions that we have to answer from a political perspective when we get back to things like COP 27 to answer for why the government has not been able to do this when clearly there is interest from all of the different groups. I'd love to just get a sense quickly down the line if uh, you think the climate provisions, the climate provisions of Build Back Better will pass this year. Yes, I certainly would hope so. I'm, I'm greater than 50%, <laughs> let me just say that. I, it makes sense. It just makes sense, and history says these are the things that they've, they've passed before. Carla? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm higher than 50-50 also, even if it just takes the form of a tax extenders bill, which, which it's perfectly fine. I mean, the, those bills were good. So mm -hmm. I, I, think, I think there's a, a pretty decent chance. Okay. I'm a Let's, yes. And here's where we can all help. Everybody in here can get to your social media. Tweet it out. Tag the University of Chicago. Tag your senator. And just say you want it passed. Use the levers that you use. We can assure that it happens. Let's take some questions for the audience. Uh, raise your hands. I'll call on you. and. and uh, I could ask you to tell us your name and affiliation. And, and uh, I know we started a little, little late. I don't know if we're still, if we get a little extra time on the back end, but someone will tell me when we're close. <laughs> to, um, and if I could ask you to ask a question, and, and uh, ma'am, right here in the front. Yeah, um, my name's Eileen Cleese, and I'm. Um, Hold on, wait, can we ask you to wait for the microphone? Mike here. My name's Eileen Cleese, and I'm a member of the Citizens Climate Lobby, which has been in place a long time, has had a lot of bipartisan support around carbon fee and dividend, which is currently uh, House Bill 2306. And I'd like the panel to address, um, you know, why, you know, what's stopping the kind of endorsement, and I mean, it does have bipartisan support, although less now than it did 
a few years ago. And you know, the basic premise is that the carbon tax is at the well, at the point of source, at the border, wherever, wherever carbon fuels are drilled or piped. And that the carbon tax starts at $40 a metric ton and goes up. And that that tax is redistributed to households. Perfect. So, right so now, the question is? How, why, it, I mean, it just seems so obvious that that would address the, so, you know, the, the price uh, impact on you know, people without money or you know, low income. And it would also provide the incentives necessary for um, the technology needed to, you know, let's say, insulate houses, right. streamline the grid, Carlos, maybe, yeah. maybe you could, so, because we were so discussing this sure, with our students. Sure, we, we talked students. about it earlier. And uh, kudos to CCL, wonderful organization. The uh, House Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus that, that I helped co-found was in, in coordination with CCL. So uh, thank you for being a part of that organization. And the answer to the question is, uh, I, and I think I touched upon it earlier, number one, there's a communications issue with a carbon tax in that it is you know, a, a tax that is applied broadly across the population. The dividend does obviously offset that. So I think you know, if you're having just a policy, a substantive argument, you say, well, yes, it is a tax, but um, especially lower income households will, will maybe might be even better off as a result of this policy. They might have more income uh, as a result of this policy. Uh, but then it runs into the other issue, which we discussed with some of the students earlier, that I think for most members of Congress, the idea of money coming in and the money going out with them being able to, to put their fingerprints on it is just, is just no fun. So uh, a lot, especially a lot of uh, members uh, on the left, and if they do come around to supporting carbon pricing, it'll be true of Republicans as well, they want to be able to spend this money. They want it for agriculture. They want it for uh, uh, child tax credit. They might want it to uh, extend the um, 2017 um, uh, uh, tax cuts. So that's, that's the challenge with this bill in terms of why don't more members of Congress support it. I think uh, that's uh, an obstacle. I mean, one of the reasons Congress brought back earmarks or congressionally directed spending as it's again <laughs> communications they don't want to call them earmarks because that's a bad word but um, they're earmarks the reason they brought it back is because it helps build coalitions so that's one of the big challenges uh, with the CCL bill other thoughts on tax and dividend we need to move policy full stop we need to move policy and a price is the fairest way, the most efficient way, and the most effective way to do it. So um, whether it's this vehicle, whether it's a low carbon fuel standard, whether it's a clean energy um, payment program, I don't think it matters as much as the fact they need to move something. And the time is now to move something. Anyone else? Gentleman in the second row, Grace Hutcher. Yeah, I'll stand up, I guess. Um, I, I had another question. Tell kind us of your on name. The, uh, oh, sorry, okay. yes. Um, I'm Dan Huguenin. I'm a uh, freshman at the University of Chicago College, um, majoring in economics. Um, I had another question on the uh, topic of kind of the political possibilities for passing some sort of uh, carbon fee. Um, I've heard floated the idea of pairing uh, a carbon tax at whatever the level of the social cost of carbon is 
with a reduction in um, just non-tax environmental regulations to sort of reduce economic distortion. Um, I'd, any of you could address this, uh, but I guess, Congressman, you'd probably have the most insight into it. Um, do you think that's something that could potentially appeal to Republicans to move them closer towards being in support of uh, some kind of carbon fee? So you're saying trading a, a fee or a tax for right. uh, deregulation? A hundred percent. So in, in the bill I filed in 2018, uh, our, our price on carbon would require a rolling moratorium of EPA's authority to regulate stationary sources of carbon emissions. So for, for the most part, power plants, as long as the emissions reductions targets were being met. So definitely it's, it's a wonderful way. And again, a very intellectually honest way to balance the policy. If we have this price on carbon, why do we need additional regulation on top of that as long as we're meeting the emissions reductions goals? It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful way to reduce um, the, the size and scope of government. And I think it's, it's a, an element of the, of the carbon tax and dividend bill as well. But that's, that's, a, that's you know, if um, there's ever a Republican, another, well, there is a Republican carbon tax bill because the Market Choice Act has been refiled in every Congress um, after I, I left Congress. Um, and that, that's definitely going to be a component of it. Some on the left don't like it, but they're willing to accept it. So here are a few of the challenges, is it is relying on the fact that those industries are actually doing the right thing and that there's enforcement taking place right now, and that simply is not happening. And so if you really want to dig into the ground level impacts, if we had industries that were constantly meeting right now what those standards were, and had even created a trust to the fact that they could be relied upon to do that, might be in a situation where that is more amenable and acceptable on a community level. Unfortunately, winter storm in Texas, just one example showing us where that didn't happen. Um, pretty much any extreme weather event, hurricane, flood, that comes uh, in the space of facilities, first of all, we don't have the monitoring because the monitoring systems go down. So there's no way to account for and calculate whether or not they're actually doing what they're supposed to do. And then there are a number of enforcement measures right now that simply are not being complied with and that there are state entities that are not forcing them to comply, which makes the federal idea of deregulation one that doesn't sit well with communities because we can't trust that they're going to do what they're supposed to do. So I think that while the idea is one that could work in a perfect world, it is a perfect world assuming that everyone is going to do the right thing. And there are some good actors, but unfortunately we've had far too many bad actors that have sacrificed entire communities that it doesn't sit well with communities to say, we can absolutely do this. This is the best way to do it. And we can rely on the deregulation. Hand in the back. Uh, we need some on the left, on the left side of the <laughs> aisle at some point. But <laughs> woman in the, in the white shirt. Hi. Um, my name is Annabelle Burns. I'm a fourth year in the college. And my sense is, or my understanding is, Biden came in with quite an ambitious um, climate policy or um, ideas that he had. And then because of the Ukraine crisis and the war there, that has been somewhat stalled, um, in part to keep 
gas prices down and to not associate climate um, any climate package with like harm to consumers. Um, and I can see how that would make sense in terms of making sure, like in election year, making sure people are being elected who are like protecting voter rights um, and who are going to be like friendly to climate change um, bills in the future. Um, but also climate change is super important now. Um, how do you sort of think about reconciling those two tensions that both need addressing in the year 2022? Maybe Heather, we can start with you. How do you feel about that assessment of, of the Biden administration and, and how do you think it should be addressing these tensions? Yeah, it, it is certainly a challenge because this is one place where you have major green groups and environmental justice groups that actually align. Um, aligning on the fact that we have to hold strong in our efforts and push towards renewable energy and using this opportunity and at, let me, I don't like saying opportunity. This moment that's happening with Ukraine, the very traumatic and unfortunate circumstances, is not the time for us to say, okay, let's slow back and slow down on renewable energy outlay. In fact, it should actually be the, quite, the, the opposite of that. Um, I was sharing with students earlier, to me it's like, I, I have a five-year-old, and when I'm trying to wean him off of fruit snacks, and there are no fruit snacks in the house, do we run to the store and get fruit snacks to abide by the tantrum, or do we say, you're gonna have to hold up, wait, go get an apple and a banana, right? We're in that moment right now because of what the country's reliance and dependence on fossil fuels is. But we also need to take the time to understand what we already have access to. There are existing permits that have not been explored that we have not done. The oil and gas companies have permits that they could use for drilling. We don't necessarily need any new ones. There are things we could do right at this moment in the United States to keep our prices low, as opposed to um, saying, okay, well, let's go on out here and go get some more. Uh, I, I think that we have to say to ourselves, if we do not hold at this moment and really dig into the need for renewable energy, the infrastructure outlay that's going to be necessary in this country to really realize that. So think roads, bridges, um, energy grid, all of these dynamics, then we're doing ourselves a disservice for the next conflict because the data tells us that as global warming increases across the planet, there will be more conflict. There's a wonderful um, map that's been done by EPIC and I believe Climate Impact Lab together that shows us this. So we know the data exists. We know there's going to be another conflict. We're going to meet this problem again. It's very important for us to stick to pushing on renewable energy right now. Bill, I'd love your thoughts. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a digital issue. I don't think it has to be one or the other. Um, you know, as, as a company, BP is looking at, at what we call advantaged hydrocarbons. While we're reducing our production, by the end of this decade, 40% less oil and gas production as a company. Uh, where we are investing and what we are doing is the lowest carbon footprint of those hydrocarbons. So how do we, how do we meet today's need in a way that recognizes that we still need to reduce 
the carbon that's being emitted to the atmosphere? And then how do we make the investments? You know, another leg of our, our, uh, our strategy is investing heavily in, um, in renewable energy. You don't have to drive very far, go on Interstate 65, and as you go through Fowler Ridge, Indiana, there are 355 turbines that BP owns that are producing about a gigawatt of energy every single day that the wind is blowing. And those are the type of investments that we need to continue to make. And it brings it back to Build Back Better. The tax policy that helps build that infrastructure is actually old policy. And it's policy that the US government has used for years, the Congress has used to encourage that investment. And we need to keep doing that, and we need to do more of that. So I think it's a little bit of both right now but it can't be one at the expense of the other because that will give you the absolute wrong outcome. Questions on this side of the aisle? <laughs> well, then let's, let's perhaps um, wrap by, by going to the, the sort of premise of our, of our conversation here. Is this the time, is now the time for a price on carbon? We've talked about the, the benefits. We've talked about the political challenges. Uh, I think it was John Podesta who once said to me, you can find 300 economists who think a carbon tax is a great idea, but I'm not sure you can find 10 politicians in, in Congress. Um, I don't know if that's true. Is now the time for a price on carbon? Let's, let's start with you, Dylan. Yeah. Short, short answer is yes, and, and I've been dying to use this. I was reading on the way in. Um, Milton Friedman, 1970, University of Chicago economist, said the social responsibility of business is to make more profit. 2019, the Business Roundtable, which Carlos referred to, the purpose of business is to make sure that we have an economy that works for all. So going to your question, yes, now is the time, and it's incumbent on industry and business to put their shoulder into it, like what we're doing as a company, because it doesn't address the issues with our neighbors if we don't put our shoulder into it. We can't just blame the politicians for not acting if we're not telling the politicians what it is we want as a society, what we want as businesses. So we have to bring our voices out to help move it along. Carlos, is this the time for a carbon tax? Uh, the time for pricing carbon was a long time ago because it's, it's, we've been paying for it for a, a very long time. I thought the best time was 2018 when I filed a carbon <laughs> pricing bill. <laughs> what I especially want uh, to leave um, our, our students here with is um, remember that uh, government in a democracy, especially our government, the way uh, it's set up is not about passing the best policy. It's not about passing the most popular policy. It's, it's the art of the possible. It's about passing whatever you can get enough votes for. And understanding that and accepting it makes us more effective advocates. Because rather than dismissing people or um, trying to shame people, we actually understand them and, and we start trying to persuade them. And that's the way to get to 
60 votes or 51 votes, whatever it is you need. So uh, this is going to take time. It, it should have already happened, but you know that's just not the world we live in. And uh, you know that's why a lot of what we do is spending time working on the Republican side of the aisle to build relationships between industry groups, lawmakers, bringing Democrats and Republicans together, uh, having conversations to build the trust uh, and the understanding and the relationships that are necessary to get to get things done in life. So our government is no different. I mean, the only way to change this is, is, is to change our Constitution. And if you think it takes a long time to get good climate policy, it'll take 100 years uh, to change the Constitution and maybe to move to a parliamentary system that can move more efficiently because you got the executive and the legislative together. That, that's just not the country that our founders built and, and, and not the country we live in. So keep advocating. Keep reaching out to elected officials. Do so constructively. I know we get angry, and every once in a while it's OK to, to show that. But what we need more of here is persuasion. That's what I tried to do during my time in Congress. Uh, I would try to meet people where they were at, not embarrass them or shame them for not being where I was at. Heather, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, is this the time for a price on carbon? So I, I am a recovering politician. Uh, <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> and, and I am at a global organization because EDF is an organization that works and, and seeks the biggest solutions um, to the world's biggest problems. Uh, and we cannot afford to exclude any solution any solution, because we believe the climate crisis right now demands it. It demands us looking at every possible tool and resource that we have at our disposal to meet this crisis. And doing that is going to also require, and one of the things I think we're doing, is deeply listening to the communities that are affected first and the most, or first and worst. So calculating what that cost is from the perspective of the community is an integral part of that conversation. So we have to use all of our tools. If, if we're really serious about meeting the climate crisis, we don't have a choice. But giving true value and ensuring that we're not sacrificing people in the process of doing that is a paramount part of how the solutions will be embraced and driven and scaled around the world. And as Carlos said, each of us in this room and beyond has an ability and a responsibility to be a part of that. So whether you are talking about it here in your classrooms, with your family, on social media, make a TikTok about it. Do something. Because everyone has a role to play in using all of our tools and resources. And this is one that we have to consider. Yeah. I'm so happy to have been speaking with all of you. Please let's give. Phil and Carlos and Heather, a warm round of applause. Thank you, Thank you. for a wonderful discussion. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Sam Worry.